You are listening to an audio resource produced by Faith Presbyterian Church in Anchorage, Alaska. If you would like to learn more about the life and ministry of Faith Presbyterian, you can do so by visiting us online at faithanchorage.org. Good morning again. Thank you for being here at Faith Presbyterian. We're looking this morning at a scripture from Luke chapter 5, beginning at verse 12. That's where you can open your Bibles to. Uh, We're going to uh, talk this morning uh, about uh, seeing clearly this passage, what what exactly is happening. It's a miracle passage, and the miracle is the healing of a man who has leprosy. But uh, I believe that sometimes we look at these miracle passages and we assume, I see the miracle, I got it, and we move on. And what we don't do is we don't dig in to really come to grips with what is miraculous about the miracle. What's miraculous about the miracle is not simply that, although it's a, it is a miracle, it's not simply that the leprous man is made well. There's some things underneath that miracle that I want us to see. Uh, Our passage is going to take us right into the very temple. Now, it happens in the cities outside uh, of uh, Jerusalem. But the end of the passage uh, takes us into the temple. So uh, you're going to have to kind of flesh that out in this passage. I'll explain it. Um, For little theologians, what I'd like for you guys to draw is I'd like you to draw a scene at the temple where a leprous man is making an offering to a priest. Again, uh, he doesn't have leprosy, so don't worry about that. Leprosy is a skin disease. But there's a man and a priest, and they're in the temple. Now, Jesus is nowhere to be seen. He's nowhere to be seen. But this man and, and the priest are together at the temple, but they're talking about Jesus. That's very interesting. They're talking about you, but he's nowhere to be found. So uh, maybe you can try and draw a temple and just call it good. Um, I never know how you come up with these pictures. Does, anyone, does everyone have a Bible this morning? Luke chapter 5 is where we are. Patrick will get a Bible to you if you don't have one. Luke chapter 5, we'll begin at verse 12. Before we even read Scripture, let's pray together. Please pray with me. Our Father, we thank you for your word, that you make yourself known. Father, we pray that you'd forgive us for reading it so quickly, skimming it really. Kind of like the... the a manual for how a tool works or how to install an appliance. We kind of get the highlights and we move on. We don't need to consult it again unless something goes awry. But Heavenly Father, you've given us scripture that we would bathe in it, that we would study it, that we would meditate upon it, that we would pray it to you. We pray that you'd forgive us, Lord, for not treating scripture in a special manner like that. Be with us as we hear your word. Be with me as I preach your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Again, the passage is Luke chapter 5. Let me find it myself. Short passage, 12 to 16, 512. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, as Moses commanded, for a proof to them. 
But now even more the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. This is the word of our Lord. I know that, well, maybe you don't want to admit this, but I I know it anyway. Those of you who are here as Christians, I know that there are times in your life where you're just buried under distractions and you wonder what's good about the gospel at all. I mean, I believe it, but does it have any day-by-day influence on my life? And we, and I can throw myself in the same lot, we can just easily be content going from boredom to boredom, uh, distraction to distraction, and we call that life. We're progressing through life. We're Christians to be sure, but boredom to boredom, distraction to to distraction. Uh, those Those two words, boredom and distraction, are the way one philosopher summarizes what life is like today, a Charles Taylor, Canadian philosopher. And he says, this really is what we've come to, distraction to distraction, boredom to boredom. I mean, if you just think about technology for half a second, you should should get what Charles Taylor is after, distraction to distraction, boredom to boredom. And and in that, that's not even a trial, right? It's It's not a persecution as such, but just in the normal life of a human being today, it's really hard for the Christian to marvel at the gospel. I believe in it, but does it matter? Is it really there? And, and I think about the, uh, the parable of the sower and the seeds that are thrown on rocky ground. And Jesus tells his disciples that this is someone who receives the word with joy, but has no root in himself. And you know what happens. Trials arise, he falls away. But just think about that. Receive the word with joy, but there's no root there. We have an opportunity to taste the roots of the gospel as we study God's Word. And the reason I'm speaking this way, because looking at this passage, studying this passage, we're going to look at another miracle uh, next week, the miracle of the healing of the the, uh, paralytic man. But just looking at this miracle, there's miracles underneath miracles underneath miracles. What's happening in this scene is not just a guy was physically ill and now he's physically well. There's more happening here. And that's what I, that's what I want you to see. And I want, it to be, I want it to be a source of encouragement to you in your own Bible studies, your own reflection on God's Word, praying over God's Word, that you would expect there to be something more. Expect there to be something more. Well, what this passage is about is it's about this. It's, it, we're to see that only Jesus is qualified to cleanse us from sin. Only Jesus is qualified to cleanse us from sin. I'm going to start by just looking at the times in which this man is living. Desperate times call for desperate measures. And I want to spend some time in verse 12, and we'll, we'll do that first of all. And then we'll switch gears and we'll consider the response of Jesus, what Jesus actually does. And really, that's just in verse 13. Jesus very quickly enters into this man's life to do something. But let's just look at the man's life, his condition, first of all. It looks very clear that this man doesn't simply have leprosy. Again, in the Greek, that's just a generic word for a skin disease. But Luke is being emphatic by saying that he's full of leprosy. He's full of a skin disease of some sort. Now, normally, leprosy would would start in small places, It's visible to be sure, 
But it would start in such a way that the person with leprosy could just cover it a little. But after a while, it's going to expand and get worse. And that person then has in Leviticus 13 a prescription for going to the priest and spending time with the priest, which is really the priest just examining him to see if the leprosy is growing over a seven-day period. Then he comes back, see if it's growing over the next seven-day period and the next seven-day period. But when we understand that this man is full of, full of leprosy, uh, his case is not a normal case. His case is very visible and likely very painful. It's not debated in this man's life if he has leprosy. He certainly has it, and it is clear to everyone. So normally when someone would simply be separated from uh, other people for a seven-day period or seven-day intervals of time, uh, that separation is actually not cruel. The separation is to help keep other people safe. And that's why a person who uh, has leprosy, it has been certified by the priest that he has leprosy, and it helps to keep the whole community safe so that this man uh, can't even enter a tent. But the priest is going to watch the progress of the disease. And the priest is going to hope that the progress lowers, that the leprosy doesn't get as bad this week as it did last week. Uh, the priest is always looking to see that it's getting better and not worse. And if it's getting better and not worse, the person is just kept, uh, kept outside the camp, but the person can still have interaction with people. In fact, the person comes into the temple to be examined every seven days. But that's not this man's case. This man's full of leprosy. He's not getting better. No one thinks that he is getting better. It's, it's better this seven-day period. He's getting worse. And because he is getting worse, there actually is a stipulation in Leviticus that would guide the behavior of a person for whom the leprosy is getting completely out of hand. I want you to read that passage or at least listen to that passage. It's Leviticus 13. And listen to this case of desperation beginning at verse 45. Leviticus 13:45 says this, "The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp." That's this man's case. That's this man's case. It doesn't have to be that way. It certainly isn't always that way. Some guys get better, but not this one. And so this is a wandering outcast who actually comes to Jesus. This is a man who lives in a special camp for leprous people outside of the city. He cannot be in contact with people who do not have leprosy. And in that camp, life is different Everyone's on the same footing in that camp. Uh, don't forget, King Uzziah had leprosy. There are uh, just a multitude of social distinctions within that leprous camp, and those distinctions are actually not being honored there. These people are gathered because they're all outcasts, and they cannot be a part of normal society. And any... Uh, any hope that they have from their money is useless in the camp. Any hope that they have from their status is useless in the camp. That's the kind of man that comes to Jesus. And inevitably, there would be spiritual overtones. 
Just imagine how people think about someone who has a little case of leprosy. Minor skin disease, it's a rash. They're going to the temple, it seems to be getting better. I hope that you would be tenderly disposed to a person going through something like that, even though the image is quite awkward, isn't it? But you would hope that, you know, things are getting better and, you know, there's a bright side at the end of the tunnel and, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be okay. You know, maybe not in 14 days, but maybe 21 days. It'll be all right. I hope that's how you would think about someone who's, who has a, a skin rash, but it seems to be getting better. Again, odd image. But what if it's just shown time and time again, this is not getting better, it's getting worse. And your friend then is ostracized and sent to live out in a camp. Someone who used to live in your house as a part of your household is now not allowed in that house and not allowed in the city in which that person lives, grew up. How would you deal with that person? And this is how the Israelites dealt with those people. It's not normal. Something clearly is up. And what would happen is the sickness would take spiritual overtones. And then people around the table would begin to think, maybe something is desperately wrong with his heart. It's clearly not a skin rash, and there's, he's not going to get better. Maybe it has something to do with his sinfulness. And so then the role of sin begins to enter into the situation. You begin to analyze and parse this individual's life. It's clearly not a rash, it's something more. That's the division that this man felt living in a camp. It's been so long that people are beginning to wonder if there's something spiritual at stake here. I suspect that's probably inevitable. He's an outsider because of his physical body, but he's an outsider for other reasons. People don't really know how to deal with him. He's so tragically sick, people don't know how to deal with him. That happens to us, doesn't it? People are so ill. I just, I don't know how to talk to you. People with physical disabilities can be challenging to us for similar reasons. And really, it's just ignorance. I don't really know how to talk to you. I don't know how to live with you or alongside of you. And it's hard to put into words, but it's there. It's almost as if this man has become a foreigner in his own country. He's an outsider. But I want you to hear this. This is one of those miracles beneath the miracle. The man is not simply desperate, right? Wouldn't it be automatic just to think, he's desperate, so he's going to run to anyone to be healed. Anyone that he sees, he's going to run to them. He's going to grab their ankles. He's going to beg. He's going to plead. But he doesn't, does he? He's not generally desperate. It's a particular kind of desperation. I want you to think about his desperation as, as a gospel-laden desperation. It's a desperation in which there are seeds of the gospel at work in this man's heart, and they're hard to see, and it would be awkward as this man comes darting through a crowd to Jesus. Awkward. But they're there. Maybe some of you remember a stage in your life when your conversion was like this. It was like stretched out. And there was this, this time in your life where you were very curious about the gospel, but you just weren't sure if you were ready to believe in the gospel. And this man, he's curious about one person on the face of the earth, this Jesus of Nazareth. 
It's not just general, general desperation. It's a particular desperation. And he doesn't run to everyone. He runs to Jesus. In fact, when you look at the passage, we're told at the very beginning of our passage that it takes place in a city. If this happens in the city, he shouldn't even be in the city. But he runs through the gate of the city and he runs to Jesus. It's a desperation with an object. Do you hear gospel overtones in that? It's a desperation to be sure, but it's not a hopeless desperation. It's a desperation with an object. And sometimes we feel like that in our lives. You feel like you're desperate beyond all measure and you have absolutely nothing. But you have Jesus. And you may not understand Jesus, but there's an object to your desperation if you're a Christian. There ought to be an object to that desperation. What's interesting is that Jesus isn't a priest. He's not dressed like a priest. He doesn't look different than any other man that is standing there. I think of Isaiah 53 that tells us that he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men as one from whom men hide their faces. Sounds a little bit like a leprous person, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Just think about that. Isaiah 53, uh, 2 and 3, it sounds a little bit like this outcast person, this person who's just been cast aside. And uh, in many ways, when we see an outcast like a leprous darting to Jesus in whom there was no physical majesty about him, it's almost as if we have one broken man darting for another broken man. It's a powerful picture. We have one rejected man running to another rejected man. Casting all social cares by the wayside, darting into the city, and running not to people in general, but to one particular man. Why would he do that? Well, at least two reasons, I should say. One is that the Holy Spirit is working in this man's heart that Jesus would become the object of his desperation rather than chasing a million other objects. The Spirit's at work. But another reason, probably the easier reason to discern, is that he has heard about Jesus' works. He's heard about Jesus' works. Just to put that more pointedly, Jesus is a worker, He's a worker. He has a task. When he dies on the cross, he says, it is finished. He is doing stuff. He's working. And this man knows that Jesus works. That's important when it comes to the question that he has for Jesus. But he goes to Jesus. He bows before him. The word that's used there for bowing is a bowing in prayer. He bows before Jesus. He begs Jesus, implores him, and he calls Jesus Lord. And what he says in verse 12 is very interesting. There are two phrases in the Greek. And one phrase is simply this, you can make me clean. You can make me clean. You see, the issue for this man is not a matter of ability. It's a matter of willingness. Is Jesus going to be the one who is willing to make me clean? He certainly can do it. The leprous man is clear on that. But is Jesus willing? You know, he's heard these testimonies about Jesus, and he hopes that Jesus will do for him what he's done for others. 
When I think about this, I think there's some, some clues to how to do evangelism here. I think that oftentimes we go to our non-believing friends and family members and we just consider that they have such hard hearts, they're not desperate enough to say yes to Jesus. They're not desperate enough to say yes to Jesus. And that may be the case. I think sometimes in our prayers for our non-believing friends and family members, we'll actually catch ourselves praying that something monumental will happen in their lives, that they will actually cry out to Jesus. It's a tough prayer. I've made that prayer before. That's hard. But this man, he knows that he's desperate, and he just needs the object of that desperation. But maybe the key to our evangelism is closer to this. And Peter mentions this in 1 Peter 3. He says we're always to be ready to give a reason for the hope that's within us. And maybe you may be wishing and hoping and praying that your non-believing friend or family member who you care deeply about, hoping and praying that they come to a sense of their own desperation. But it may be that they know their desperation. It's secret. And they don't have an object for that desperation. And when Peter says, be ready to give a hope for the reason within you, you're to share your desperation with them. Share your desperation with them. Let them know how desperately hopeless you are without Jesus. Let them know that there was nothing about you that would cause Jesus to come to you and to touch you. Tell them about your own desperation. Maybe you don't believe that you were ever desperate. I hope you don't believe that as a Christian. I hope that as a Christian you never forget that you are absolutely, utterly desperate without the grace of God in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son. And can you tell that to your non-believing friends and family members? I want to see your desperation more. I think that if you were more desperate, you would cry out to my Lord and Savior. But as a shortcut, let me tell you about my own desperation how pathetic I am, how aware of my sinfulness I am, how I have no right at all, at all, to stand before God without Jesus covering me with his perfect blood. Well, Jesus actually responds in this situation. You know that he responds. Uh, The compassion that Jesus shows begins in verse 13. Uh, The the compassion that he shows is clearly multidimensional, the multidimensional compassion of Jesus. Uh, Jesus gives an important display of his willingness by touching. Think about that. You know, that alone is a miracle that he would touch this man and not only not be afraid of catching leprosy, but not catch leprosy. In fact, if nothing happens to the leprous man, let's just let Jesus touch him and let's hang out with Jesus for seven days and see if he gets the disease. And then seven more and then seven more. That alone would be a miracle. Jesus touches this man. Nobody in the world would do this to this man right now on this occasion. Nobody in the world, not even a priest, would touch this man. When this man is being examined by a priest, the priest is not touching his clothes, is not pushing back his skin to see if there is a lesion under his armpit. Not even the priest is touching this man. That's just miraculous. Why would Jesus do that? It makes no sense at all. He touches him. 
There's something that happens even before Jesus touches him. And Mark, in chapter 1 of his gospel, makes this clear. This also shows up in Matthew chapter 8, this story. But in Mark chapter 1, Mark says that Jesus is moved with pity. So imagine that. Jesus touches the leprous man. But there was something inside of him, in his mind, in his heart, that told him to touch the leprous man. And Mark draws that out by saying that Jesus was moved with pity. And the pity informs the action, and the action makes contact with the leprous man. How about that for a miracle? That Jesus would be moved with pity for this man. That his heart yearned for him. And what this means is that not for a second was Jesus ever afraid of the expectations of his audience. He was never afraid for keeping up with the traditions of the people. He has no care at all for his reputation on earth. None at all. Thoroughly consistent. He wasn't forced to touch the man by the social pressures, by the expectations of the people. He's moved with pity. And in full control of the constitutional nature of how he has been formed by God, he touches the man. He's not afraid of his own physical body. He's not afraid to catch a disease. And even more remarkable than that, he's not afraid of losing his own cleanliness. The Holy Spirit has rested upon Jesus. It is uber-ordination, hyper-ordination, ordination like no one else. It's not an oil that has bathed Jesus. It is the very Holy Spirit that has descended upon him, anointing him for his work. And yet he touches a leprous man. For those of you who are very conscious of your wickedness, Catch yourself thinking about the sins of your past, the things that you've done that you just would really prefer no one ever know. If you wonder if Jesus would yearn for you, if you wonder if Jesus would be moved with pity for you, I think you should stop wondering. And maybe you stop wondering now. Maybe you stopped wondering, but it still kind of haunts you. I think you should stop wondering. He touches him. And he adds words. He says, I will. The willingness is there. Do you know that? The willingness is there. If you're standing on a precipice, I would encourage you to know that the man preaching to you now is a man who was desperate, desperate, had no hope whatsoever, and Jesus came to him. And was willing. He's willing to come to you. Well, clearly the leper is healed. He's healed instantaneously. I hope what I've done is I've, I've challenged you to see that there's more under the miracle than the miracle itself. The leper state is uh, a state of physical need, but there's strong spiritual overtones. But we're, we know that he was not only healed, but he was made clean. He was made clean, and to us that doesn't, if you're healed, you're healed, and healing and cleanliness may be the same thing, but to be made clean is to be able to stand before God. 
To be made clean is to be able to stand before God. It's not just healing. It's actually he's been made to appropriately stand in the very temple of God. You see, according to the law, the leper would first be examined. He's examined by a priest, and the priest has to pronounce him unclean. And then the priest is going to visit, visit with him uh, over a seven, another seven-day period. And he's going to see if he's still unclean or if he is clean. And he's going to do that for uh, reading Leviticus 13 and 14. There's at least three seven-day periods that the priest gives the man to come and come back and prove that he is actually clean. But sometimes a guy is going to be so unclean that he's not going to be quarantined. He's just going to be turned loose, sent out. And that's why I read that passage from Leviticus 13, because it seems as though that's this man's case. Because you can't keep going to the priest every seven days for the rest of your life. At some point, at some point, he has to be sent away. And he is sent away, and he lives alone, and his dwelling is outside the camp. And once your dwelling is outside the camp, you never come back. You never come back. You die outside the camp. There's no help for you but to simply wait. What are you waiting for, by the way? The priest cannot heal you. You're waiting for the health to come. You're just waiting for the health. And if you start to feel like the health is coming, then maybe you can go back and visit the priest. But you're just waiting for the health to come, and it never comes. Jesus came, and Jesus healed him, and Jesus made him clean. Listen to what Jesus says to him. He says three, three things. He says, be silent, right? Mark tells us he has to be silent because he can't go spreading the word, and it increases the number of crowds that press upon Jesus, and it hampers his ability to teach to as many people as possible. And that's true. But also consider that he has to keep silent so that when he goes to have that meeting with the priest, the priest can simply examine this man without the man boasting. Can you imagine when this man walks into the priest? This is a man who should be in the camp until he dies. Doing a funeral for this man is, what, what, uh, is the next thing that should be happening. But he comes to the priest and Jesus says, be silent. And he tells him to be silent because the 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 leprous man is allowing Jesus to testify because he's standing there with his arms out and his legs spread. And every time the priest looks to see if there's any evidence of leprosy, with each instance that he notices there isn't leprosy, that man is testifying to Jesus, refusing to boast, showing forth what? The work of Christ. So Jesus says, be silent, and he says, show yourself to the priest. The priest is going to examine him. How awkward an examination would that be? I am perfectly healthy. What are you looking for? I'm perfectly healthy. But the priest goes through the process. He examines him for seven days, and it looks as though this man may be clean. What we read this morning is that passage. He may be clean. Let's sprinkle him with blood and wait another seven days. You can be around the people, but not in a tent. And after those seven days, I want to see you again. That's what we read this morning. That kind of that middle ground of, wait a minute, this guy may be healed. And then finally, the man has to return to the priest and he has to make a sin offering and a burnt offering. 
And this is what would bring a man in full communion with God. He is actually making an offering to testify that God has healed him. No man on earth could heal from leprosy. God had to have been the one that healed him. And he makes a sin offering and a burnt offering before the priest. And the priest is actually witnessing in that burnt offering a very special testimony of Jesus. Because who is that burnt offering for? Who is he thanking? Who is he praising? The entire temple has been turned upside down because the one who is being praised and thanked in the temple in that moment is standing outside the temple. It's the man who everyone calls Jesus of Nazareth. And this leprous person has an opportunity to make a wonderful testimony before the priest, almost the center of the beehive, to go to the priest and to testify to Jesus, to evangelize to, Jesus, to the priests the name of Jesus. The kingdom of God is here, the leprous man gets to say to the priest. The work and the words of Jesus are the kingdom of God's presence with us here. All of my praise, all of the blood, all of the offering, all of the thanks is to Jesus. And he's over there. And how remarkable it is that in uh, Luke 5.17 is the first occasion we get to see the priests beginning to come and test Jesus. Because a man who was made clean by Jesus, by his perfect work, goes to the priest and evangelizes the priest about who Jesus is. This is what Jesus does. He has healed me. And as I am cleansed by him, I praise him. It's, it's, there are miracles within miracles in this passage. I want to leave you with this. I want you to, to remember those times where you're just not sure if the gospel means anything to you. I, I believe in it like I believe in other things, and, and you're just not sure. And I want this to be one of those narratives that reminds you that what has happened in you by the Holy Spirit being delivered from the domain of darkness into the domain of light is a miracle. It's miraculous. Your profession of faith in Jesus Christ is staggering. You live on a broken world in a body that is infested with the pollution of Adam's guilt and the, and the power of abiding sin, and yet... Jesus is with you. The Holy Spirit dwells in you. You long for money. You long for status. You long for all of your relationships to be exactly as they are in your wildest dreams. But if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit dwells in you and dwells in you because, because Jesus wasn't afraid to touch you. wasn't afraid to touch you. I want to pray for us, and we'll confess our faith, our faith together using Holy Scripture. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the reminder of who we are in Christ Jesus. Jesus, thank you for your unrelenting, passionate, and compassionate zeal to save Our Holy Father, we're not desperate anymore with this gift. Jesus, we thank you for satisfying the perfect demands of your Heavenly Father that you might redeem a people for yourself. Jesus, thank you for touching us. In your name, amen.